And let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the abundant gift of your grace that has been given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we have just sung, there is a wonderful hope that we come to a Savior who never casts out sinners. That we are sinful souls, Father. And that, Lord, your justice, your holiness, your righteousness demands that we be cast out. Yet, in Christ, you have made a way for us to be accepted before you. And so there is no other argument, there is no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for us. And so there is a glorious hope that as sinners we can come and be accepted before you. But Father, we look back on this past week. And Lord, in all of our lives there have been failures either in our actions or in our thoughts, where we have not seen you as enough. Where we have placed idols in the place that you rightly deserve. Where we have indulged in sinful activities that you expressly forbid. And Father, that in our thoughts, in our attitudes... In our interactions with others, Father, there have been multiple times where we have failed. And so, Lord, we come into your presence boldly but humbly, recognizing that our only hope is found in Jesus Christ, the crucified. And Father, your grace is of such magnificence, your hope, is of such greatness that you do not just save, but you restore, you change, you transform, and you do this through the means of your word that has been given to us. Father, you are not required to say anything to us, yet, Father, you have provided riches that we will never be able to mine on this side of eternity in your word. And so, Father, as we come today, we've come to this glorious thing that you have given to us. May we seek to hear your voice in these words. May we submit and kneel our knees before your authority that is given in your word today. And may we, by your grace, and through the ministry of the Spirit this morning, may we leave this place changed to be more like Christ. Father, work in our midst through your Spirit today. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, So... You came back after last week's sermon that was an hour and ten minutes long. I'm surprised. No, I'm glad that you're here. Um, We're not going to be an hour and ten minutes uh, this morning, Lord willing. And you're like, okay, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, 
we've been looking at the pilgrim's submission. And we spent um, an hour and ten minutes last week going over what Peter calls us to do in 2 Peter chapter 2. So I'm going to go ahead and read the passage again, and then um, we're going to be spending a little bit of time, very briefly, in Numbers uh, to sort of show the importance of what Peter is saying. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, Peter writes, Be subject or submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus Christ is, of course, the great example of what we are called to do in our submission. But I want to read to you from the book of Numbers a account that had serious implications in how someone responded to and, and reacted to the reviling of others. We know that Moses was a great leader we know that Moses led Israel out of, the prom, out of Egypt towards the promised land. We know that as Israel was about to enter into the promised land, there was complaining, there was griping, there was doubting of God's promises. And as a result, Israel was not able to go over and to conquer the land immediately. They were judged by God, disciplined by God, to be sent into the wilderness to wander for 40 years. And during that 40 years of wandering, God was gracious. He provided for His people. He made bread literally come out of nowhere. Rain from the heavens. He made water flow out of a rock. So God was, in disciplining His people, He was immensely gracious. How did His people respond to this gracious provision from God. Look with, well, I'm just going to read for you. Numbers chapter 20, verse 3. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished 
when our brothers perished before the Lord. Now the attitude, there's, there's, much to, there's a whole other sermon here about gratitude and thankfulness and, and how we should look to our gracious God even in the midst of the dis- discipline he brings upon us. But what I want us to focus on is Moses. Now, let's not give Moses too hard a time here, right? He's been dealing with these people for ages, all right? They've been griping and complaining the whole time. Like, you go on a long trip with your kids, and they're complaining and griping, all right? Moses had that times a million, all right? So, you know, that, that question, are we there yet, you know, probably got old after the first six months of this 40 years of wilderness wandering. All right, Moses had to deal with, with pestilent, annoying people. But his response to that is so important. See, the Israelites here got to a point, it says that they quarreled with Moses. And the underlying word here has the idea not just of saying, you know, not just questioning Moses' decision, but also questioning Moses himself as if they were throwing insults. They were, they were reviling Moses. And so Moses gets angry. And if we look at verses 10 through 11 of this passage, we see what Moses happened. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Moses is angry. His anger is righteous at this point. But the anger, because of the ill treatment of others, is welling up within him. And we see in verse 11, he lifts up his hand, and instead of speaking to the rock as God has commanded him to do, what did he do? Struck it. Now, God is immensely gracious. What happens? Water still comes out. Water came out, and it just didn't come out. It came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. But we know the consequences of of Moses' response to these pestilent people. He's not allowed to enter the promised land. He has rebelled against what the word of the Lord had called him to do. And frankly, I think if we examine ourselves and we were in the same situation, we'd probably not be calling them rebels. There'd be other choice words that we would be using. And we'd be striking that rock just as quickly as Moses did. Our response to unjust accusations, to the ill-treatment that we receive by the hands of others matters. That's what Peter has been arguing and what we read this morning in verses 18 through 20, right? We're to be subject to our masters. Those who have authority over us, we are to submit, even if they're unjust, even if they abuse us. Now, this only happens, as we saw at the end of verse 20, through the grace of God. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God if this happens. But what we find is we've looked at this passage. We've seen the call to submission, or the command of submission. We saw that last week. We saw the purpose of submission. We saw the practice of submission. 
But now Peter points us to the example of submission. And that example is Jesus Christ. Look with me again in verse 21. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The first thing we see is our call to submissive suffering. To this we have been called. Again, if we were to look back a little bit in verse 20, we see that just to sort of build upon Peter's argument here, we are called to suffer because it's a means of displaying God's grace. It says, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, if you break the law, if you go against the authorities, if you, if you do what you ought not to do, then it's not persecution. If you're willfully disobeying the authorities placed over you, it's not a gracious thing for you to suffer. It's ridiculous is what Peter is saying. Don't, don't use the freedom that you have in Christ as a cover-up for rebellion. That's what he said earlier on. So it's no credit if when we sin or are beaten for it, we endure. But it is a gracious thing for us when we do good and suffer for it and endure. It is a display to the world around us of the grace of God at work within us. When we push back, when we revile, when we act as those who are ill-treating us are acting, we do not display grace. We display our flesh. And if you think about what we tell the world, we tell the world that we're saved from this world, that we are sinners that are redeemed. So what does that mean practically in our everyday lives? Live like it. It needs to be evident in our lives that we're different than the world. The world is full of rebellion, is it not? The world is full of pushing back against authorities and and standing up against those who ill-treat them. But what's remarkable is when his people are ill-treated, and it's obvious that they're ill-treated, even the people that are treating us unfairly, they know that they're treating us unjustly. But if we endure, rather than push back, it is a display of the grace of God to unbelievers. We are treating them with grace. What is grace? Unmerited favor. It's favoring those who don't deserve our favor. Now, we want to hang on to that whole deserve thing. I deserve to get back at them. But God's grace is such that we can treat them in a way that they don't deserve. See, that should be our desire to everyone. We should desire for everyone to experience grace rather than justice. If we were to receive justice, where would we be? Immediately at this moment, experiencing God's eternal wrath. But God has treated us not with justice. That justice was satisfied in Jesus Christ. So we are treated with what? Grace. 
So our suffering is a means to display grace. Well, that means that displays grace is the suffering by which we are redeemed. Christ's suffering is the means by which we are redeemed. Notice again in verse 21. So this suffering, enduring, when, when we are being ill-treated, that's what we've been called to, he says in verse 21. To this you have been called. Now why? Why are we called to suffer unjustly? Well, because Christ also suffered. But here's the thing where Peter makes it intimate to our lives. Christ suffered, not just sort of ancillarily or sort of out there in the world. Christ didn't just suffer as a victim of injustice. Christ suffered injustice for you. Hallelujah. But yet he did this to save us from our sins. He suffered for us. Why are we called to treat those who ill-treat us with grace? Because that is exactly how Jesus has treated us. We are his people by his grace. In that grace, he absorbs the justice he did not deserve so that we could receive the righteousness that we could never earn. He imparts this favor on our behalf for our benefit through suffering. This is the essence of why we suffer, to grace those who bring us affliction. It is outward focus. We seek their benefit at our expense. So when our hearts well up within us as we're being mistreated, because you know that when you're not treated fairly, what happens? Oh, this isn't right. We clench our fists. We pound the desk. We get upset. And anger begins to well up within us. And we demand justice this isn't fair now when we are demanding justice who are we focusing on ourselves but christ's entire life i mean think about this christ is the example for us in all things right his entire life was others focused Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul commands the believers in Philippi to have a certain mind among themselves, which is theirs in Christ Jesus. And then look at the lengths at which Christ suffered for our benefit. Even though he was in the form of God, he didn't count that equality with God something to hang on to. He let it go. He did not prefer himself. He preferred others. And so he was made in taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He did this by emptying himself. And that wasn't it. I mean, the God of the universe comes in the form of human man. That's humility, right? But he didn't come 
as the richest human. He didn't come as, as, the, as the king of, of all the world um, at that time. He came born in a manger to a carpenter and his wife who was being accused of sexual promiscuity. I mean, talk about humility. But he's not done yet. Because he humbles himself even more by becoming obedient. What kind of obedience did he have? He comes obedience to the point of death, even death where? On a cross. He is the great example of our call to submissive suffering. And so, as he shows us this, notice what Peter says in verse 21. He leaves us an example. What are we to do with that example? Follow in his steps. Our response to suffering must follow Christ's response to his suffering. We must follow in his steps. Peter echoes here an oft-neglected part of what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. You know, we tend to avoid suffering at all costs, right? Nobody likes to suffer, right? I'm suffering right now because I have to be cut off from soda, or else I'm going to die, likely, all right? All right, this is a very small suffering, obviously, um, I need to cut back on. So I said this before my congregation. So if you see me with the soda, you have the right to say you shouldn't be drinking that. Or if you want to take a firmer hand, knock it out of my hand. Um, I will try to not revile in return. But I mean, I'm not happy about this. I, I you know, there's, there's sodas everywhere. I, you know, I can go to the store and get the bunch of big gulps and just enjoy it. We, I don't want to do that. We want to avoid suffering at all costs. Now, particularly in America, I mean, we, we don't really, I think, know what other people face for suffering for the sake of Christ. We have no idea. You know, we're able to freely assemble here. We're able to go to the store and get what we want. So when it comes to us, suffering in America really is all about inconvenience. We don't want to be inconvenienced. And so we avoid inconvenience at all costs. We're impatient. We're demanding. We are self-centered. But what mindset are we to have? A self-centered mindset or Christ's mindset, as we saw in Philippians chapter 2? Christ's. And, and who was he thinking of? Others. So Peter then is connecting suffering submissively with this call. He's saying the same thing that Paul is saying. But the reason that this is not new to Peter is because it's exactly what Christ said to Peter about what it means to be a disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? It says, From that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be uh, raised. Right? Peter doesn't like this. So he takes Jesus aside. 
You know, he, he's like, Jesus, can I, can I talk to you for a second? Pulls Jesus, you know, aside. He's like, look, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. And Peter is going so far as to, as the ESV translates it, what's he doing to Jesus? He's rebuking him. I mean, that's some gall, all right? He's rebuking the sinless Son of God. And so Jesus rebukes Peter. He turns to him and says, what? Get behind me, Satan. And the point there, I don't think he's trying to point out that Peter himself is Satan. I think what he's pointing out is that Satan is using this as a temptation in Christ's own life to say, don't don't go this way of suffering. He says, you're a hindrance to me. And here's, here's the issue. What is Peter not doing? He's not setting his mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That, that, is, that is the fundamental truth that we have to have as we approach suffering. Where is our mindset? And then Jesus opens this up. He's like, you know what, everybody, let's get in on this conversation that Peter has as he's rebuking me. And he tells his disciples this. It says, if anyone, if anyone, right? So if you want to be a disciple, does that exclude anybody? When he says anyone, does that exclude anybody? No. If anyone would come after me, if anyone's going to follow me, what do you have to do? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow him. To take up your cross was to take up the instrument of your own destruction. It is to completely reject thinking on the things of man and seeking to be like Jesus Christ. And then he says this, because if you want to save your life, what's going to end up happening to it? You're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Peter is echoing here what he learned from Jesus. And what's great here is to see, you can actually see spiritual growth in Peter's life. You know, when he's with Jesus, he's rebuking him and saying, this isn't the way to think. And now, what is he doing in this letter? He's encouraging other believers to get what Jesus says. To follow him, because that is necessary. One cannot be a disciple of Christ apart from embracing suffering for his sake. That's what Jesus is saying. And so Peter describes the submissive suffering of Christ, who is our example. So Christ's response to those who inflicted suffering upon him, that should be Whose response? Ours as well. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, we are to take his yoke upon us and we are to learn from him. How how does Jesus act in the world? He is what? Gentle and lowly. And what's amazing about this is when we do this in the midst of turmoil, guess what we find? Rest for our souls. 
We find it in Christ himself, who is the great hope of rest and peace. But we also find it in living a submissive life to the authorities that are placed over us, even if they cause us suffering. So what is the example that Jesus gives us? And we want to quickly move through the things that Peter points out here. We see, first of all, that Christ responded to suffering righteously. Again, verse 21, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. All right? So what is the first, what is the first thing that, Jesus, that Peter points to as the example Jesus gives us? He committed no sin. Christ responded to suffering righteously by committing no sin. Now this is building upon what Peter has already said, that when we, when we go before men, we are showing them our good works, we're displaying that in our lives, so that they, when they make foolish and ignorant accusations against us, it becomes obvious. All right, so we're, this is an extension of what he said earlier on in the passage. You know, if there was any evidence that Jesus was perfect, it is clearly seen in his sinless response to unjust suffering. Right? And that's what, that's what Peter is sort of making a point here. It's like, look, it's, it's easy for you, if you're not suffering, to do good things. But what is a clear indication of grace is when you suffer and you do good things. And Jesus is the great example of this. You know, Jesus decided to not respond in kind to those who caused suffering to him. Now, our first response when someone inflicts suffering on us is, oh, you just wait. Think about that song in My Fair Lady. You just wait, Henry Higgins, you just wait. Yes, I watch My Fair Lady. I still have a man card, so. You know, that, that's, our, that's our response. You just wait. I can't tell you how many times I hear people talk about their, their faith in karma. And what they mean by that is they look at karma and they say, well, th- well karma will get you in the end. You ever heard anybody say something like that? That is not the way of Jesus Christ. I praise God that the Bible presents us with grace, not karma. And that means that we need to treat others with grace and not seek karma. We are not to respond in kind. What does the saying go? We've often heard two wrongs don't make what? A right. Two wrongs don't make a right. If someone sins against you, it is not your right to sin back against them. But yet that mindset is so easily ingrained in us. We need to do what Paul tells us in Romans 12, 21. We are to not be overcome by evil, but how do we overcome evil? We overcome it with what? With good. Jesus did not sin. We also see, secondly, he did not use deceit. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now, what Peter is beginning to do, and There's sort of a morphing of the passage here where he is now, as he considers Christ and his example for us, he begins to quote Isaiah 53. 
Isaiah 53 is extremely instructional for us because it shows us the suffering servant. It shows us what Christ is going to be. And so he's tying together not just the New Testament realities of what Peter experienced, but also the fact that this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And so he begins to weave that together as we come to the end here in verse 22. There was no deceit in his mouth. We see that in Isaiah 53, 8 through 9, that Christ, by oppression and judgment, was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with a wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. Again, he didn't respond to the violence being done upon him with violence. And there was... No deceit in his mouth. Jesus had no deceit. You know, it's so easy to lie, isn't it? It's so easy to lie. Especially when we're in the midst of suffering, where we know that if we say the right thing, even though it's not truthful, we can get out, we can exit the difficulty. Jesus faced suffering, and he never sought a way out through means of deceit. He establishes his righteous character by not lying, and then he establishes his innocence by not lying. So our call is to face unjust treatment the same way, not reverting to sinful behavior, not responding in kind, and then also conducting ourselves truthfully throughout our suffering. So Jesus had no sin and no deceit. But then we also see that Christ responded to suffering with submission. We see this particularly in the fact that he did not revile. Look at verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Now, this is, this is sort of where we, we often will go, all right? Someone says something about us, we want to throw it right back at them. We want to revile them right away. Now, the, the reviling that Christ suffered attacked his very humanity. All right, look in John 18. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with the hand. So, the, so the, the chief priest asked a question. Jesus responded. They didn't like the response, and so G, he gets a slap across the face. Is that how you answer the high priest? And notice what Jesus says. If what I've said is wrong, bear witness. All right? If I've lied, show it. But if what I've said is right, why are you striking me? Jesus was taunted. He says there were two criminals that were led away to be put to death with him. They came to the place that is called the skull. They crucified him. The criminals, one on his left and one on his right. And as he's hanging there, what are they doing? They're gambling over his robes, his garments. People are standing by. Rulers are scoffing at him. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. We have Gentile soldiers mocking him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then we have Pilate's mocking, 
inscription put over his head. This is the king of the Jews. I mean, he was debased. He's hanging there naked. Bruised and beaten from being um, scourged. Struggling to breathe. And all that's surrounding him is not those giving encouraging words. It's those that are mocking him and reviling him. And so what did Jesus do with these people? What did he do? He prays for them. He says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. That is what we're called to. When we are facing such immense reviling, we're called to bless. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.12, we labor working with our hands. When we're reviled, what is their, his response? We bless. So Christ did not revile then we see he did not threaten. Again, look at verse 23. When he revived, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Now, here's the thing, all right? Oftentimes, when we are faced with those who are persecuting us, when we're suffering unjustly from authorities, they likely have more power than we do, all right? If, if two police officers were to come in here and arrest me for preaching, I could struggle, but they're going to win, all right? As we said, I drink too much soda, so I'm not in the best physical shape to fight off one, let alone two police officers. Ain't going to happen. I don't have the power. So my threats against them, they're just sort of going to laugh off when they get back to the barracks. What kind of power did the Son of God have? Look at what he says in Matthew 26, 50 through 53. Judas is portraying him, friend, do what you came to do. Then he came up, laid hands on Jesus, and seized him. And then we see an account, Matthew doesn't name Peter, but we know elsewhere it's Peter that does this. Again, I'm not going to suffer, I'm going to fight back. Pulls out his sword, cuts off the ear of the chief priest's servant. Jesus says, put your sword back. Look, those who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then he says this, don't you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? And he would send legions, 12 legions of angels. I mean, that's the power that Jesus had. He displayed that when he's being addressed because they, they, he asks, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And when he says that, what happens to the soldiers? They fall back. Look, there's no contest, all right? Jesus has all power. And yet when he's suffering unjustly, he does not what? Threaten. He does not threaten. As Isaiah had prophesied, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. His mouth. Now, we see this and we think, yes, that's for Jesus. You know what Peter is saying? This is for you. He is your example of suffering. 
Boy, this cuts deep, doesn't it? Because the first thing we do when we suffer is we want to revile, we want to threaten. Jesus didn't do that. Neither should we. So how do we do this? Right? How do we do this? I mean, reading what Peter is saying, I'm sorry, but looking at myself, I don't have the strength in myself to do this. And I'm sure if you examine your own life, you'd realize you don't have the strength in yourself to do this as well. How do we do this? And the great thing is that Jesus provides the example for how we go about doing this because we see finally Christ responded to suffering with faith. Instead of sinning, instead of lying, instead of reviling, and instead of threatening, what did Jesus do? Look at the end of verse 23. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He handed his life to the Father. I think we, we oftentimes, sometimes I think we struggle with defining faith. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to believe? Because so often it can become a mental exercise. Well, I, I believe that these things are true, or, or I agree with the truth of this statement. That's not what faith is. Faith is handing your life over to the Father through Jesus Christ. It's giving everything to Him, holding nothing back. And that's exactly what Jesus does. The word here in the original for He entrusted is a word that means to hand over, to place into the hands of someone else. He handed His life to the Father, which we also know the Father, who is the true authority through this entire story? Is it the high priest or Pilate? Who's the true, real authority behind it all? The Father. And we see this. Jesus goes to the Father in the garden. He prays, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He submitted himself to the will of the true authority in that moment. He prays again, also recognizing that it cannot pass unless he drinks it. And so he commits himself to live under the authority of the Father. Your will be done. He's living his life by placing it in the Father's hands. In fact, in one way we could say, what does it mean to live, to to have faith and entrust God with our lives? To say, your will be done. And as Jesus is before Pilate, the Jews are saying we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die. Pilate hears this statement. He's even more afraid because the, the law said that anyone who makes himself the Son of God, who is not truly the Son of God, what happens? Death. Here's the problem. Jesus is the Son of God. So he broke no law. And so Pilate hears this statement, and he gets a little afraid. I'm not sure if the mysticism or the, the superstition of the, of the Romans and the, and the Greeks got into him, but he goes into his quarters, and he says to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus is quiet. He gives no answer. Pilate doesn't like that. Right? He's not used to people not answering his questions. So Pilate said to him, you'll not speak to me? 
And then here's where Pilate really steps in it. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus looks at him and says, you don't have any authority unless it's given to you by the Father from above. This is what it means to hand our life over to the Father. Everything that happened to Christ was a result of the Father's divine will. And so he recognized that the Father was the true authority. He also recognized that the Father would save the Son. And I have a litany of passages here. I really thought I was going to be done early today, and it's just not happening. So, But we'll be done regular time. There's a litany of passages. Psalm 16.10, Acts 2, Luke 23.46, Psalm 31.3-5, where there are promises made that God would save the Son. And here's the thing. Has God promised that He will save you in Jesus Christ? Yes. So no authority can abrogate that. No authority can turn that back. And so we can trust the Father with our circumstances, can we not? And then we see he continued in trusting himself to the Father. It wasn't a pray a prayer and go about my life. It was a constant moment-by-moment thing. But who was it that he was entrusting himself to? He entrusted himself by handing his life to the Father and by depending on the Father's character and nature. And this is the last thing that Peter points out here in verse 23. He entrusted himself to the Father who is the one who does what? Judges justly. What we find is that the resurrection vindicates all of Christ's claims. Jesus lived a life before the Father in perfection And the Father judged that to be true by raising Christ from the dead. It is a statement of who was right in the last week of Jesus' life. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the crowds are saying, Hosanna in the highest. They're looking to him as the king. And then a week later, he's hanging on a tree dead. And so the question is, who was right? And he rises from the dead. So who was right? He is the king. He is the son of God. And it was vindicated by the father who judges justly. There's no question in Jesus' mind that the father would not allow injustice to persist. Our God is a just God. And so that means for us, as we face injustice, God will not allow injustice to persist. It may happen our entire lives, but there will be a day when all the world will bow before Jesus Christ and proclaim Him King of kings and Lord of lords. So, as Paul says in Romans 12, 19, we're never to avenge ourselves, right? But leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The glorious thing that we're going to look at in a couple weeks is that that vengeance, for the sake of his people, was meted out on Jesus Christ. 
as we see in verses 24 and 25, where we'll look at the gospel of the pilgrim. That hope is what lies behind our ability to suffer injustice and to do it in a submissive way because our Savior did it to save us. May we follow the example of our Savior and King and be submissive in our suffering. Let's pray. Father, take your word and by your spirit, Bind it to the hearts and lives of everyone here. Lord, convict us. Show us those areas in our lives where we are lacking to be like Christ. Mold us into His image. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading His blood.